this theme of the, of the Sunday, Good Shepherd Sunday, is one of the most beloved of all the biblical themes, right? I mean, we, we see this. There's actually a curriculum for children that's, that's based upon the image of the Good Shepherd. Jesus uses this image, but it's not his. I mean, it's been around from the Old Testament days, most famously from Psalm 23. Um, if you've ever been with someone at their deathbed, chances are, if not there, then at their funeral, you shared Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 100 that we heard and all throughout the Old Testament, we, we see that image of the good shepherd. And Jesus draws upon it here in chapter 10 of John's gospel. All throughout the chapter 10, Jesus has been talking about the good shepherd and I, I looked back, and, and the way our lectionary, the way our assigned readings for each week work is that over the course of three years, we get the first few verses of chapter 10, and then the middle verses of chapter 10, and now on this, the third year of our lectionary, we get the end of chapter 10, where Jesus begins to bring to a climax his public ministry. This is the last public teaching in the Gospel of John before Jesus enters into his passion, does the very things that he's talking about here, about giving his own life up for his sheep, as he says earlier in this chapter. He says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up. Now, in every great story, there is a protagonist, and obviously Jesus is our protagonist. He is our good shepherd but every great story also has an enemy, and it has foils through, along the way. People that, by, by contrast, point to the good shepherd. And Jesus has been talking about, in the earlier parts of John, before our reading this morning, he's been talking about those, the, the false shepherds, the robbers and the thieves, the enemy who comes to kill and steal and destroy he talks about the hirelings that when the wolves come around, run away because they're not the shepherd. They're just hirelings. Jesus is painting for us a picture of his ministry among us as the good shepherd. And what he is bringing to, to the end is his appeal to his opponents, those who would oppose him, to try once more to help them understand who he is and what he's about. Now, we know that these, these opponents are, are Jewish leaders. It's referred to in, God, in John's gospel and throughout the, the gospels that these are Jewish leaders. This is not, in part, the entire Jewish people. We know the first Christians are all Jewish, but these are Jewish leaders that have surrounded him. Jesus is in the colonnade of Solomon. He's in the, if you will, we, have, we, we actually call that the colonnade out front. So it's open, but you've got the columns and a high ceiling. And so it was in the temple in Jerusalem. When they built the temple, it's, it's it, the the temple doors were facing to the east, and there was the, the court of, the, of the, the, the Jewish men could be, then there was the court of the women, and then there was the, the areas that the Gentiles could be in. And then beyond that, outside on the porch, on the east side of the temple, was this colonnade, this open area place. And that's where Jesus is walking and talking. And he's really demonstrating the very thing that he's talking about. He's, he's being like a shepherd. He's gathering his flock. 
and he's beginning to distinguish himself from Israel and temple worship. Jesus will say that within a few years, the temple will be destroyed. He'll speak that prophetically, and we know that the Romans did indeed tear down the temple around 67 A.D., Jesus is in that colonnade area and he's walking around and so there's probably Gentiles as well as Jewish people and Jewish leaders and they kind of surround him because they've tried to corner him before, tried actually to kill him before and they were unsuccessful. And so now they think they've got him in the colonnade, this area, and they begin to try to question him. But they're not, they're not asking questions because they really want to believe. They're asking questions because they want him to say something that they can hold against him. Something that they can bring to court and say, this guy said, and we know that happens later on, right? In Jesus' passion, this guy said that, that he will destroy the temple and in three days he'll bring it back. Of course, Jesus was talking about his own body, not the, the actual temple, but, but they, they use those sorts of things. And, and you know that, right? Opponents, they always try to find something to trap you up. So I, I had an occasion to be uh, asked some public questions over the last few days. I don't know if you caught that on, but you know, there was a sense in which you, you, there's a weird thing where you're, you're, you're answering questions, not to put myself in place of Jesus, but, but you're asking questions in a really public setting and of course Jesus didn't have to answer questions that were cast onto the internet but but you you're aware that there are some people that are probably at least listening for answers not because they want to decide whether or not to vote for you but because they want to find something to trap you with Jesus feels that tension as he's answering questions with these opponents and he just makes it clear he says I've told you who I am but I, mean, I didn't come right out and say, I'm the Messiah. And the reason why Jesus didn't, the Christ, the Messiah, that's the Greek word that means the Messiah in Jewish, in, in the Hebrew language. He didn't say that because he knows that's a loaded term, right? He, he, he understands that they know that that means that a mili- they think it's going to be a military leader. And he wants to avoid that. But Jesus has been very clear about who he is. He continues to say, and he says, the problem is, it's not that I've not been clear about who I am. The problem is, you don't have faith. You don't believe me. Because you're not my sheep. And he just keeps using this this shepherd sheep metaphor over and over again. You're not my sheep, and that's why you don't get it. And then he repeats something that he said earlier in the chapter. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And Jesus, again, he said this earlier in the chapter. He's repeating to them, again, what what he had said before. But then he says at the end something really interesting that that I'll come back to. He says, "Um, they hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There is security in being the sheep of God, to being his people who are with him and are in unity with him and have assurance that he will always care for them. Jesus says, but, but you, you don't believe and you're not my sheep. Well, the question becomes for us, how do, we, how do we listen and hear the voice of God? How do we 
make sure that we, in fact, are his sheep. That, how terrible would it be for Jesus to say, you're, you're not one of my sheep. That you don't hear my voice. You, you're, you're, you're continuing to try to test me, to prove me, or to trap me, but you're not, you don't have the ears of faith. We are told in the reading, beginning in that verse, verse that we read, verse 22, that it's at the time of the Feast of the Dedication in Jerusalem, and it's winter when Jesus is walking in the colonnade and the people are all around him. You need to know that that's the, the, the celebration of Hanukkah. I don't know if you know the, the history of Hanukkah, but Hanukkah was uh, celebrating the, the victory of the Jewish people over their, their Greek-speaking oppressors, uh, uh, not, not the Romans, but this is well before the Romans, but this was a sub-kingdom under the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the, the Greek leadership, Alexander the Great, that sort of thing. And, but but these, are, these are people who tried to actually impose on the temple in Jerusalem um, idolatry. They tried to bring in an idol and force the Jewish people to worship the god Zeus. And the people rose up and said, oh no, not on our watch. And they staged a revolt. It was the, called the Maccabean Revolt. Judas the Hammer. Judas the Hammer is the one who led that revolt. And they were successful. Sort of like the Ukrainians, you know, pushing back the Russians. You know, it was, a, it was sort of a, a, an unexpected victory. But they, they cleansed out these, these foreigners and their idol and they cleansed the temple. And so in the year 164 BC, they began a celebration, a festival, festival of lights, commemorating the victory that their people, it's sort of like for us, it would be like if you could wrap thanks, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, where we celebrate religious freedom, you know, we we, you know, our, the pilgrim fathers came here and mothers came here and escaped religious persecution. And if you wrap that up with Independence Day, that's sort of what Hanukkah is for Jewish people. Except not only did they have religious freedom, but, but they, they threw off an oppressor who tried to bring idolatry into the very temple. But here's Jesus standing outside the temple, gathering his flock like God the Father who's expressed in the Old Testament as a shepherd for his flock. And he's doing it outside the temple. And Jesus is beginning to make it clear that, that whereas in the, in, throughout salvation history, it's the temple that's been the center, at least since it's been built, the center of Jewish worship. Now he's to be the center of our worship. He's the place that we're to come and find forgiveness for our sins. It's important to understand that because when Paul is talking in Acts, we just read and he's explaining to the people, he's actually given this whole biblical history of salvation. He comes to this place where he talks about the forgiveness of sins and you're like, well, that seems like a bit of a shift, Paul. But it's not if you understand that Jesus has replaced the temple as the center of worship. He is where you come to encounter God and he is where you come to receive forgiveness from your sins. Jesus is beginning to distinguish himself and to draw people to himself. He says, if he be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this, in this section. He's differentiating himself. So how, do we, how is it that we come and hear the Lord speak? Well, in our time, how do we hear the good shepherd's voice? His word written. Paul giving out that salvation history message in, in Acts 13. He's, he's reminding them of what the word of God says. And it is in that word that we find God's will. That we hear him speaking to us. And we can respond to those words. Now that may seem overwhelming to you, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible. Which is why the, the church has to be about teaching the Bible in small groups and in large groups and in, in church, we, we spend time understanding the word of God that we might seek to understand what the Lord is speaking to us. We get to hear Jesus' voice through the words of scripture as he shares them with us. We then take those words to prayer and let the spirit of God speak to us as we hear God's word. As we hear what he's saying in the scriptures, they become living and active in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Other Christians can help us to discern the will of God. What is God saying? How is he speaking to us? It can sometimes be that through our own minds and our own reasoning and our own common sense that we begin to put things together. And then sometimes he speaks to us through signs and wonders, just miraculous things he does, ways that he moves that, that are just unmistakable acts of his sign and wonder. It's interesting to me because I, I never really thought this, or at least I have not, I, maybe I thought this thought and forgot it, but as I was reading and studying for this sermon, I, I became aware that, that John the Baptist never performed any sign or miracle. And interesting, huh? Because one, one of the ways to, to say that you were a prophet was that there would be signs and wonders re regarding you. John didn't do any signs and wonders. But he pointed to Jesus who was constantly doing signs and wonders. How interesting that the prophet who precedes Jesus doesn't do any signs and wonders, but he's constantly pointing to Jesus. And that's one of the arguments that Jesus will make as he goes on after we end from verse 30. Jesus says, look, I've, I've, even if you don't believe me, believe the signs and wonders. Look at what I've done. He's just raised a man from, he's about to raise a man from the dead in chapter 11. He, he, he's, he, he makes blind people to see. He's, he is constantly doing miraculous things throughout the, throughout the scriptures feeding the 5,000, on and on, and yet there is not an awareness of who he is. As we try to discern the voice of the good shepherd, Jesus, as we seek to know what he's telling us to do, we always come back to his word. Prayer will never contradict the word of God. If other Christians are telling you to do something that is contradictory to the word of God, then it is the other Christians that, are, that you need to be cautious of. Our common sense should always build towards what God's word says, which is why it's so important. And even in the signs and wonders, we need to be aware. What does the good shepherd tell us? Above all, what is Jesus what is he wanting to say with his voice that we would hear and follow? Well, the first and paramount thing he wants us to hear is we can believe in him. 
we can trust in him that he is in fact who he says he is. As he begins to shift attention away from the temple and to himself, he is a reminder that it is in Jesus that we can find forgiveness of our sins and that we can encounter the living God. In the person of Jesus, I and the Father are one, Jesus says. He says, and he reminds us that it is in him that we find salvation. And Paul, of course, lays this out in the Acts reading we read. He reminds them of all those things that, that I've already said, that, that we hear his voice, but that he's giving us eternal life that will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hands. I, I, I couldn't figure out why it was David wanted to do in Christ alone again until right, right then we were doing it as the offertory. And then I heard the line shall never snatch me from his hand, right? And I realize it's because David's cluing in, well, that, that, that reading we just did, the gospel lesson, which reminds us that, that no one can ever snatch us from his hands. And when I was reading through the passage this week, I was like, why does Jesus repeat this two times? But he doesn't repeat it two times. What he does is, first of all, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hands. And then he turns to the Father and he says, the Father is greater than all and no one will ever snatch them out of his hands. And in so doing, Jesus equates himself with God the Father and puts the final exclamation point in front of these opponents to say, I and the Father are one. And, and he says that, he says, there is unity between the Father and the Son. Not that we're the same, but that we're one. God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just like no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, no one can snatch you out of my hand. The first thing that we're to hear the good shepherd saying is you can believe me. You can trust in me. There is assurance in me. Whatever happens, whatever people do to you, whatever life circumstance bring you, I will never forsake you. I will never cast you out. Nothing can pluck you out of my hand. Do you know how comforting that is in the midst of this troubling world? I come back in time and time again to what Jesus says in chapter 16. He says, in this world you'll find tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world and all that is in it. And I love that verse, but I think I love this one almost a little bit better because he's reminding me not only that he's overcoming the world, but that he's overcoming the world and he's taking me with him. And nothing can snatch me out of his hands. Amen. Secondly, what does the good shepherd want us to know? The good shepherd wants us to know that he's calling us to follow him. Sometimes we get in our mind that when we ask God and God's going to tell us what to do, he's going to send us away to do something over here. And he'll be back there and he's going to send us over there. But what is he saying? Follow me. There's no place that God is calling you that he's not leading you that way. And he will be with you. 
as he is with you here, so he will be with you there. But he wants you to follow him from here to there. That's what following means. I realize that's very simplistic, but oftentimes in our spiritual life, we don't see it like that. We see it as God is sending me to do something really hard over there all by myself. Never. I will never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I go with you. He even will say, I prepare a place for you. Where I'm going, I'm calling you to come to where I am. Jesus says, follow me. He wants us to follow him and he wants us to learn to emulate his character. Paul will say in Philippians 2, have this attitude in you, this mindset in you that was also in Christ. Who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He wants us to learn to serve as he lives, to be, follow his attitude, his character, to be like him. If the Lord is calling you, you think the Lord is calling you to do something and you are not Christ-like in that, if it's something that is not Christ-like, that is not the Holy Spirit calling you to do that. There is never a time when we're asked in Jesus' name to go do something that is unlike Christ. And, and, and you're going to see this, and throughout history we've seen this, right? That there are times where people do mean and cruel things because they think that it's for the best. For God's best. But there is never a time when the good shepherd calls us to be anything other than little Christ. Emulating his character. Learning to love even his enemies. I mean, do you catch it? Jesus here, this is the climax of his teaching. He's about to go into the passion. And yet he's still, well, he's doing exactly what he'll say from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he loves them. And he tries once again to help them understand that he's the good shepherd. That he's come to gather his sheep. And he's inviting them to be a part of it. He wants us to believe in him. That's what the good shepherd says. He wants us to learn to emulate his character, to be as he is. And then from there flows the specifics of what he will call you and I to do. And that will be many and varied things. Not the same thing. Some of you were called to be a mother. I was not called to be a mother. I was called to be a father. Jody says, thank the Lord. What a terrible mother I would have made. But he calls us to be different things. The problem becomes when we, we start with the third thing and then work our way back up, right? Uh, I, you know, okay, Jesus, you know, yes, your character and nature. But what, who am I supposed to marry, Jesus? And who am, what am I supposed to do for a living? And where am I supposed to live? And what am I supposed to do about this ornery neighbor that I have? And on and on and on and go. And, and we, we get it out of line. First, we're, to, we're called to believe Jesus. Secondly, we're, we're called to seek to be Christ-like in all circumstances. And then third, he begins to speak to us in the specifics of our lives. And when we just jump down to the specifics... We're missing it. it doesn't want, it's not what it means to be one of his shepherds. You see, that's the problem that the religious leaders were in. They, they, they began to think about the implication. If Jesus is the Messiah, then we're in a host of trouble because what he's teaching and preaching is vastly different than the way we're ruling over the people. 
And so because they don't think about number one and number two, they go straight to number three, they must reject him. I have found it really helpful in my life that as I begin to think about the specifics of what the Lord's calling me to, first of all, to remember number one and number two. But then, then to begin to allow other people to speak in and help me discern the will of God. Trusted, close friends. It's helpful to read scripture with those people so that you're both reflecting on what God's word written says. And then through prayer and through conversation, you're beginning to grapple with with the specifics of how that will is fleshed out in our lives. In our covenant group structure, we we talk about a triangle and we say, you know, what's going on? What's the circumstance? And then we talk about, you know, what what's God doing, what's the Holy Spirit doing, and then third, we think about what is the call to action, what is the Lord doing in light of the circumstances and what the Holy Spirit seems to be doing, what is God calling me to do, and it's through that process that we come to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, and then follow. Now, you know that I'm in the midst of this bishop process, and I'm thankful that, that I've had lots of chances to, over the course of 30 years or so to, more than 30 years, I guess, gosh, I'm old, 40 years? Yeah. To begin to practice more and more this process of remembering that I'm believing in Jesus, trying to emulate his character And then thirdly, trying to discern the specifics of his will for my life. There's always faith involved in it. There's always the sense of unknown. But if you can remember that and hold to the good shepherd and understand that above all what he wants me to do is to try to emulate his character, then it really becomes a distant third to figure out what's going on in this particular circumstance. I don't know what the Lord's doing in my life. I don't, I don't know, always know, I usually don't know what he, the specifics of what he's doing in your life. But I know he's trustworthy. And I know he's leading us to a place that he's going with us. And I know that nothing can snatch us from his hands. And so I trust in him. For next weekend and beyond. And I trust him with you because he is the good shepherd. And he loves us and he demonstrated that love by laying his life down for us. And because God raised him on the third day, we place our faith and his ability to carry us through every obstacle and through every temptation to the place that he has prepared for us.
In Jesus' name, amen.